So let me read this text, and I'm reading from the message. Matthew 11, starting verse 28. Are you tired? Worn out? Anyone there? Are you tired? Worn out, burned out on religion. A lot of people there. A lot of people. 3,500 churches closing a year in America at the moment. 3,500 churches. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. This is Jesus talking, by the way. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. It's such a great line, that. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Gorgeous. It's beautiful. Mr. Wazalewski. Hello. So I'm thrilled to have a small crowd tonight. Most people heard I was preaching. You guys get the privilege of hearing me talk. I get the privilege of of, um, sharing with all of you. So, Um, The text we started with um, is a familiar passage from Matthew chapter 11. Um, It's nice to hear it in a different tone to sort of unpack the meanings and the layer there. Some language we're not so familiar with that we just gloss past it. Um, And I'm not teaching from that passage tonight, but it flows very well into our topic. So as you probably know, our current series... Let me start the timer, too. Hang on. Our current series which also happens to be an articulation of the vision and mission of Mercytown Church, is living as disciples of Jesus in Los Angeles. Being a disciple of Jesus can be framed um, as doing three main things. I like the way this is put. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the things that Jesus does. Today I'm talking about being with Jesus and one component of that. And when we talk of being with Jesus, one of the primary prerequisites for this is to slow down. Like the passage Terry read, um, what I'm learning about and coming to discover that a lot of um, following Jesus is adopting his lifestyle to a large extent. And, And some of that means slowing down and being unhurried and you're not going to get to everything, but you can do the work God has you to do. You've probably heard Terry say, in quoting Dallas Willard, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. I found the story where that comes from. Um, John Ortberg, he's a pastor, he tells this story. He was a mentor of Dallas Willard. He says, not long after moving to Chicago, this was a long time ago, I called a wise friend, Dallas Willard, to ask for some spiritual direction. I described the pace of life in my current ministry. The church where I serve tends to move at a fast clip. I also, I also told him about our rhythms of family life. We are in the van driving, soccer league, piano lessons, school orientation years. Anybody else there? 
a few of us. I told him about the present condition of my heart as best as I could discern it, and I asked him what I needed to do. I asked him, what do I need to do to be spiritually healthy? A long pause on the other end of the phone. At last he said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Another pause. Okay, I've written that one down, I told him a little impatiently. That's a good one. Now what else is there? I had many things to do. And this was a long-distance call. Remember those? So I was anxious to cram as many units of spiritual wisdom into the least amount of time as possible. Kind of defeats the point, right? Another long pause. There is nothing else, he said. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Well, one limitation we all have is time, and there never seems to be enough of it. And part of the problem about not having enough time is that the answer is actually not more time. We would just do the same thing that we're already doing, filling more hours of it. Ask almost anyone in this day and age, how's it going, how you doing, how you been? Their answer is probably gonna be good, but real busy, been real busy. We're busy with all kinds of things. We're busy with work, with play, with shopping, with family, with kids, with school, with extracurriculars with sports, birthday parties. Our lives get filled to capacity and then beyond, somewhere between full and overflowing. This can come to a point that undermines physical, emotional, and spiritual health, to a point where our overproductivity becomes counterproductivity. Busyness can move past our schedule and into our very personhood. Busyness can move into our very state of being. Peace Cazero, who you may be familiar with, he wrote the Emotionally Healthy Church curriculum that we were going through earlier this year. He says this, we end, up do, we end up going through the motions of doing so many things as if there's no alternative way of spending our days. It's like being addicted, only it's not to drugs or alcohol, but to tasks, to work, to doing any sense of rhythm, those unforced rhythms of grace, in our daily, weekly, and yearly lives have been swallowed up in the blizzard of our lives. In light of this, today I'm going to start talking. I actually have more, so there will be a part two, I'm sorry, to this talk. Um, I'm going to talk about one way we can begin to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives, a way we can slow down to be with Jesus, a way we can restore some amount of sanity to our emotional health and mental health, a way we can cultivate a life that is oriented toward God and toward practicing his presence. Today I'm talking about Sabbath. And here's where I'm going with this. Today I'm mostly going to focus on the biblical conception and basis for Sabbath, talking about what it is, where it comes from, and in another talk, probably in January after the Advent series, I want to flesh out some of this to be more practical, more nuts and bolts, more application of what Sabbath keeping might look like for us in our day and age, in our circumstances, and with regard to each of our own unique personalities and makeups. I have a disclaimer I'm actually not qualified to preach this sermon. 
Um, I'm preaching to myself as much as to anybody. And in the spirit of full disclosure, this is not a practice that my family has concretely put into place with any definitive plan and intention. We have learned a lot about it. We've come a long way in the last few years um, of truly slowing down, of learning to rest and delight and worship, to set certain boundaries to facilitate this, to say no, not to take on too much. For me in particular, this has looked like putting aside some of my perfectionism and my addiction to being productive, um, but this is still a work in process, and we're still sorting this out. I came across a quote. This is from Ruth Haley Barton. She has a chapter in Sabbath on Sabbath in her book called Sacred Rhythms. And I resonate with this. I'm paraphrasing it to apply it to myself. But it says, up to this point, I really haven't been willing to enter all the way into the longing and the impossibility and the, that the idea of Sabbath stirs in me. Sabbath is something I know about and I've read about. In fact, it's some of the most stirring writing that I've read. The idea of Sabbath fills me with longing and also with sadness that I've not been able to work it out, how to make it happen meaningfully in my own life. With that said, I want to give you some facts about what Sabbath is, cast a vision for what keeping Sabbath might look like, and some of its implications, and perhaps we can figure this out together. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1 the creation narrative. Verse 1 and 2, please follow along with me on the screen or in your Bible if you have it. I'm reading from the ESV today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, form, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then he creates everything. I'm skipping down to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And that evening, there was morning. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So if you know the story, for six days, God is hard at work, creating everything, putting everything into order, day, night, heavens, earth, animals, plants, and then as his capstone, humankind, to rule over all of it. In chapter 2, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So six days he's working, he's creating, he's ordering, and on the seventh day, God rested. God himself rested. And the word here for rested is sabbat, shabbat, the Hebrew word where we get the word Sabbath. It means to rest, to cease, to be done. And I think the implication here is not that God is tired, not that God is worn out from making everything. It seemed fairly effortless for him, but that he's finished the work he set out to do. There's a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. It's like at the end of a long day, you feel good, you know, we are tired. But you sit back, maybe you open a beverage, you look at what you've done, and you go, that's not bad. Again, Ruth Haley Barton says this, Sabbath keeping is more than just taking a day of rest. 
It is a way of ordering one's life around a pattern of working six days and then resting on the seventh. It is a way of arranging our life to honor the rhythm of things, work and rest, fruitfulness and dormancy, giving and receiving, being and doing, activism and surrender. Moving on to verse 3, it says, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This verse says God did two things with regard to the Sabbath. He blessed it, and he made it holy. If you look back into chapter 1 through the creation narrative, there are three things that God blesses. The first is the animals. The second is humans. And the third is the Sabbath. When God blesses the animals and the humans, the blessing is connected to a mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There's this life-giving ability that God gives to procreate, to recreate, to bring more life into the world. And when God blesses the seventh day, the Sabbath, I think we can draw out the implication that the seventh day, and specifically the rest of the day, has the ability to recreate, to refill, to replenish humankind who has been made in his image. The fact about work is, work is good. Work is God's idea. Work is something God assigned to humans before the fall. But no matter how much you may love what you do, work depletes us, wears us down over time. Whereas rest, on the other hand, fills us up, has this potential to restore us physically, mentally, spiritually. Rest is life-giving. The second thing God did is made it, made the Sabbath holy. Again, this is the first time the word holy is used in Scripture. And what does it say that God makes holy? What is it that God sets apart here? It's a day in the week, a moment in time. What's interesting is that in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, which would have been contemporaries in the time of ancient Israel, the gods were found in spatial objects. They were found in a temple, or in a spring, or in a cave, or in a shrine. Here, God finishes creation. He doesn't create a holy temple as his habitation. He makes a holy day. Abraham Joshua Heschel, a 20th century Jewish rabbi, said this. He said, the Sabbaths are our great cathedrals. Judaism is a religion that hasn't had a physical temple for almost two millennia, and the practice of Sabbath has served as a centerpiece of Jewish life and has played a large part in preserving the identity of the Jewish people. So to recap from Genesis 1 and 2, we we see God model this rhythm of work and rest. We see from the outset that Sabbath is God's idea and God's intention, a day that is blessed and a day that is holy. From the beginning, Sabbath stands as an invitation from the Creator to His creation, formed in His image, to work because God worked, and to rest because God rest, rested. We're going to move now to Exodus 16, so please turn there with me. I've got a lot of scriptures today, so you're welcome. 
So as the story of the Bible continues, Sabbath as a command becomes more explicit and then becomes codified into the law of Moses itself. Um, In Exodus 16, to bring you up to speed here, Israel, as you know, has been enslaved in Egypt, and God has worked this miracle of the Exodus to bring them out of slavery. But now they're in the desert, and they're wandering, and there's no food and no drink, and they're hungry and they're thirsty, and they're grumbling. So in chapter 16, verse 9, I'm going to read a little ways here. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. That's mercy. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And in the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? That's the Hebrew word for manna. It just means, what is it? For they did not know what it, what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. God is providing for them each day. But notice they still must do work to go out and gather that which God has provided. Skipping down to verse 22. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. I'll stop there. So this is the first time the English word Sabbath appears in the story of the Bible here. And he says that it's a holy Sabbath to the Lord. This is a day from and for and dedicated to God himself. It's not just a day of rest. It's a day of worship. Therefore, Sabbath is not the same thing as a day off. A day off is a good thing. A day off, we don't work for our employers. Uh, But we probably do chores, get caught up at home, pay the bills, shop, um, fulfill obligations to family and friends, go to birthday parties, go to sporting practices. We're still running around pretty hard, usually on a day off. On a Sabbath, the idea is rest and worship. If we're going to observe a holy Sabbath to the Lord, this should be our filter. Is it rest? And is it worship? it doesn't fit these two criteria, it can probably wait to one of the other six days. Continuing on, verse 23 still. He says, bake what you will bake, speaking about the manna, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside till morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. What you see here is that they got ready. In the Gospels, the day before the Sabbath is called the day of preparation. In Jewish practice, to be able to keep the Sabbath properly, adequate preparation is necessary, which means planning ahead. 
in order to be free to worship and to rest on the Sabbath, it means gearing up, it means getting things done, it means finishing chores, paying bills, answering emails, doing the shopping, preparing your Sabbath meals if you don't want to cook on the Sabbath. It probably means a flurry of activity to get ready, leading up, and then Sabbath, rest and worship. Everything else can wait. John Mark Comer, a pastor at Bridgetown Church in Portland, says of the Sabbath, it's like a weekly holiday, but with less stress and no in-laws. There's that same sense of anticipation and preparation. Continuing in verse 25. Now they're on the Sabbath day. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Tomorrow you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather. So they didn't quite follow instructions, but they found none. God is training his people here in Sabbath keeping. He is literally providing for them for six days, and they had to go out and gather it. And then he was providing extra on the seventh day in order to free them to worship and rest, also to teach them to trust him, that they don't need to be spinning their wheels seven days a week for them to survive. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. What's interesting here is that verse 28 references God himself, references the Sabbath as a command and a law. But in verse 29, he says, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. The Sabbath is both. Sabbath is a command and Sabbath is a gift. With respect to the command, we've already seen this in Exodus 16, the chapter we were just reading. Uh, Later, the Israelites arrive at Mount Sinai, which is where God gives them the Ten Commandments. Observing Sabbath comes in as number four of the Ten Commandments, and is actually the longest of the ten. What's more, there's there's two retellings of the Ten Commandments. There's Exodus 20, and there's Deuteronomy 5. Um, They're pretty similar, um, and the command to keep Sabbath is similar in each one, but there's different motivations given in those different passages. In Exodus 20, the command to keep Sabbath is grounded in the way that it imitates God's own pattern and example in Genesis 2. In Deuteronomy 5, the command to keep Sabbath is grounded in Israel's liberation from slavery in the land of Egypt, grounded in their identity as a free people. Slaves don't have a choice if they're going to work or not. Free people get to rest. So a question that arises, at least to me. So why was I never taught to observe Sabbath growing up in a Christian home and in a Christian church context? Well, it's true that there is no explicit command in the New Testament to observe Sabbath. Most of the references to Sabbath in the Gospels 
or in the book of Acts, refer to it just as a day of the week, like when something happened. In Paul's letters, he barely mentions Sabbath at all, but when he does, it says something we shouldn't judge each other about with respect to how we keep it, or even if we keep it. It seems to be um, consistent with how he views a lot of the specific ceremonial uh, commands given to the Old um, in the Old Testament, given to Israel, that served their purpose for a time, that pointed to Jesus, that were ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, and now are not the main thing. Now that we're no longer under the law of Moses, but under the grace of Jesus Christ. For Jesus himself, the Sabbath seems to be a special day set apart for getting into trouble, mostly with the religious leaders. We see him constantly doing good, healing, bringing new life on the Sabbath, which actually seems to fit very clearly in with the spirit of the command. But in doing so, he's also pushing back against and frustrating the legalistic expectations of his day. For our last scripture passage, turn with me to Mark 2. starting in verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. This is Jesus and his disciples. And as they made their way through, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees, which were the religious leaders of the time, kind of regulating here, were saying to him, look, why are they doing something that is not lawful on the Sabbath? Your implication is that, hey, they're working on the Sabbath, and you know they shouldn't be doing that. Here's the thing. The command, don't work, is fairly ambiguous. There's no clear injunction in the law that says you can't pick an apple or pick some grain if you're hungry on the Sabbath. What had happened over centuries is that the Pharisees had added hundreds of rules to clarify just how far you can go, just how much you can carry, just what you can do and can't do on the Sabbath. The intent probably came from a good place, a desire to obey God and to safeguard their obedience to him. But clearly, it had become restrictive and contrary to the spirit of the law. Jesus goes on to make an argument about why what they're doing is fine, and he wraps it up by saying this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, which is what Jesus tends to call himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. The point here is not that mankind is to be confined by the Sabbath, but that the Sabbath is a gift given to mankind. In the first century, legalistic Jews in this context probably needed to hear that second part. Man was not made for the Sabbath. But we, in our 21st century non-Pharisee context, probably needed to hear the other part. Sabbath was made for man. Sabbath was made, thought up, designed, intended for human flourishing to give us the necessary physical and spiritual refreshment that comes from slowing down, from rest and worship. Going on into chapter 3, 
This is a common theme we see with Jesus and the Pharisees. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him. Not that they cared about this man or his hand or healing, but they were caring about their own laws. And Jesus said to the man with the withered withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? So Jesus' categories here are not exactly matching up with the Pharisees' categories. Um, But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved in his heart grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. I didn't realize this before studying for this talk, but actually most of Jesus' healings recorded in the Gospels took place on the Sabbath. Sometimes that's the main point of the passage, Jesus versus the Pharisees, you know, I'm going to heal on the Sabbath. A lot of times it's just a story of Jesus healing, and what it did for that person, and just sort of as a side note, says, and by the way, this was on the Sabbath, and the religious leaders weren't happy about it. I don't think it's a random coincidence. The Sabbath is a day to do good, a day to save life, a day that is holy and blessed, a day for worship and rest, a day for healing and restoration, maybe a day that Jesus does some of his best work. So even if the Sabbath is not a binding command on followers of Jesus today, and even if we shouldn't get caught up in legalistic judging of each other for keeping Sabbath or not or how we do it, which I agree, the principle and the spirit of the law still stands, a day that is holy and blessed, a day that is for worship and rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. This still stands as an invitation and as a gift to us from God. I'm wrapping up here soon. Some of the implications. When we don't take this invitation to rest, we fight a rhythm that's embedded into our very physiology, into the very fabric of creation itself. And eventually we reap consequences. This could look like weariness, fatigue, exhaustion, burnout, stress, anxiety, a worn out immune system, that's me, lethargic body, a slow mind, an empty soul, relational disconnection from God and those we love. But when we respond, this invitation, we reap benefits. A day to stop from our labor. A day to set aside our striving, our productivity, our consumerism, our envy, our worry, our need to perform, to be accepted. A day to embrace our limits as a gift, to remember that the world will get along just fine without us. A day to remember that we live in a story and we're not the main character. A day to rest in our identity as God's free people, loved and accepted 
apart from anything we do to produce or to accomplish. A day to slow down and pay attention, to notice the things that we miss when we're in a rush. A day to engage in activities that are life-giving, that restore us and replenish us and delight us. A day to be fully present with family and friends. A day to rest the soul, replenish the spirit, rest the body. A day to taste a sampling of something even greater that awaits us when we will all enter an eternal Sabbath rest in God's perfect presence. A day for God to have our rapt attention. To conclude, Sabbath is a way to cultivate a life in God's presence, to create space, to dial into the frequency, to be attuned to God. Walter Brueggemann, a 20th century Old Testament scholar, says this, people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. It is a practice for a day, but it's also a way of life. It's a practice for living in the reality of God and his provision all week long. When you Sabbath well, you stay in a spirit and a heart posture of rest in God, even as we work throughout the rest of the week. There is a day that is blessed and that is holy. There is a rhythm in your body and in the cosmos that respects the interplay of work and rest. There is an invitation from God to slow down, to make a decision, to make a plan, and to make this a part of your life. God willing, in January, I'm going to do part two, because when I prepared this sermon, it was like, you know, two hours long. Um, But I want to talk about uh, what this might look like practically, some challenges that we have faced that have been obstacles to us fully implementing this. Um, But for today, I hope I've done at least something to cast a compelling vision. I want to leave you with um, one more passage um, describing one author's experience with the gift of the Sabbath. Hang on one second. Okay, listen to this. See how it sounds. She's talking about, you know, the challenges of implementing a Sabbath, but then she says this. I have also experienced the utter joy and relief when Sabbath does happen. When the house has been cleaned, special food has been bought, the computer has been turned off, the last obligation has been completed, or not, and set aside. The candles or the fireplace has been lit, and it is time to stop, whether everything has been finished or not. I know what it is like to rest for hours until I finally have energy to delight in something, good food, a good book, a leisurely walk, a long-awaited conversation with a loved one. I know what it is like to feel joy and hope and peace flow back into my body and soul, though I had thought it might never come again. I know what it is like to see my home and my children through the Sabbath eyes of enjoyment.
I don't always have those. I know what it's like to have rest turn into delight, and delight turn into gratitude, and gratitude into worship. I know what it is like to recover myself so completely that I am able, by God's grace, to enter into my work on Monday with a renewed sense of God's calling and God's presence. How could you not love a day that does all that? How could you not sell everything you have for this pearl of great price?